Welcome to The Backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf. I'm your co-host, but only host today, Matt Considine. The professor is not with us, so if you're showing up for the fun facts, for the stumpers to start the show, they're, they're not here today. Um, I did just, I, I was trying to think of what's a fun fact I could share with everybody that would be in the vein of the professors. I, I don't have the, the acumen and, and wealth of knowledge that he does. But I have been reading up on bees lately. If anyone is a follower of New Club, you know the spirit animal of our golf society is the pollinator, the bee. Uh, so I, I didn't know this, but a fun fact, professor's fun fact of the day, bees, one of the biggest, most important decisions of the hive is finding a new hive, a new home for their generations to continue. And I thought this was really fascinating. The bees the way that they find their new home is by dancing. So one bee is a scout bee. That's its kind of purpose is to go find a new home. The scout bee goes out. The scout bee checks out the new space. They do this very meticulous uh, measurements of the new, new pad, where they're going to be putting up their new hive. And then it comes back. And the enthusiasm at which the bee dances signifies to all the other bees if this new place is worth while is if it if it's where they should head and if other bees aren't impressed by that then they don't go check it out themselves so they do this kind of uh shimmy throughout the entirety of the the scout bees and as more scout bees hundreds thousands even in some cases go check out this place and they all come back and do a dance i thought that was fascinating there's your fun fact of the day to get started on the backdrop podcast but uh we'll have the professor back next week this week though we welcome a very special guest. Uh, many of you that are listeners know we're big fans of Alistair McKenzie on this podcast. Uh, we have our winter meeting coming up in Northern California, where we'll be playing the golf courses of Dr. Alistair McKenzie. And so we decided we had questions and we wanted to get someone who is well-versed on both the man the, the architect, the, the artist, and the writer that is Dr. Alistair McKenzie. So joining us today on the podcast is Joshua Pettit of the Alistair McKenzie Institute, which is dedicated to researching and documenting the career of golf's preeminent architect. Uh, Josh is also a principal architect at Pacific Golf Design. And, and prior to that, he worked with DeVries Designs, attended the University of Massachusetts, as well as the University of Edinburgh. Um, so we're very excited to have Josh on the show today and dive in on all things Dr. Alistair McKenzie. Uh, brief note from our partners at Titleist. Titleist is off and running with our Quest for the Crown competition. We have our winners who have already gotten fit and uh, the T-Series irons are already showing up at their door. I saw a few sets of T-100s, a couple T-200s, and then I think the other uh, winners of the competition ended up with a hybrid set of T-150s and T-200s. So thank you to Titleist for supporting New Club. Thank you, Titleist, for supporting the pod. Uh, the SM10s, if you want to hear more about the SM10s, go back to our Heathland episode on the golf courses of, of the Heathlands in England outside London, the professor opens up the show with about a 10-minute spiel about his SM10 fitting and how the bounce interaction uh, was, was heavily affecting his performance and improvement. So um, thanks to, to Titleist. And without further ado, on to the show. Josh Pettit, welcome to The Backdrop. 
Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. I don't know if you caught your your introduction there. I usually have the professor with me. It's a little different talking into the ether, but give us a little background on you. I mean, you uh, have recently released the McKenzie Reader as part of the McKenzie Institute, the Alistair McKenzie Institute. Where, where did you get the McKenzie bug? Like, where, you seem to be about the similar age to myself. I mean, wh- when did this kind of start? Did you say, I'm going to go learn more about this guy? Uh, it started when I was uh, 19 and uh, my first summer out of college. I've been working in the golf industry since I was 15 at uh, several local courses and then also at uh, Spyglass Pebble Beach for a summer. But when I was 19, I got a job working at the Meadow Club, which is a course that you guys are heading out to soon, I understand. Um, I, I grew up just down the road from there. And uh, I got a job working on their maintenance and in-house construction crew was, was really what I was doing. They had put together an in-house crew to restore the golf course and to upgrade the infrastructure under the supervision of Mike DeVries was the consulting architect and longtime superintendent, David Sexton. And, um, and right away, you know, just talking with, with David and Mike about the process of trying to restore the original design of this golf course, um, you know, the processes and methodologies of the, the research that went into it and the analysis and then um, the on-site work of actually kind of carving back, scraping back everything that had sort of um, cluttered the golf course over decades. It was, it was sort of this um, archaeological process. And uh, I just fell in love with that. I thought it was just super fascinating. And so that's that's when I caught the bug. I started doing my own research in my own time um, into McKenzie and his career and, and all these other courses he designed. And uh, I've been doing that ever since. That was 20 years ago, which is pretty wild. But, you know, and then went on to work at some other McKenzie courses and be involved with other restoration projects and um, have just always, you know, I developed that bug for, for research in my own time. And um, it's kind of addicting as, as some researchers, historians will tell you, you know, especially when you're like, when you've got a lead on something, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of an addicting process, time consuming, but, but also, you know, a lot of fun. So that, that's what, that's how I got the bug. Nice. I, and you end up in school on the East Coast as well as a stint in Edinburgh. Is that right? Is that because of yep. pursuing landscape architecture or what took you, you grew up in California. What took you out East? Yeah, well, it was actually Mike DeVries who, you know, kind of became my mentor when I started working at the Metal Club and, um, and it sort of, I, he was the first person I met that was a professional golf course architect. And uh, it was like this kind of aha moment that, wow, you know, you can make a profession out of this, even though you're not a well-known retired PGA pro like Jack Nicholas or Arnold Palmer or whoever. Uh, but there's actually people like Mike who pursued it, you know, from a young age um, and then, you know, academically pursued it with a, an arch- a landscape architecture degree in his case. And, uh, and you can make a profession out of it. And so that was, that, uh, prompted me to actually, um, switch my majors, um, transfer schools. And I pursued a landscape architecture degree at university of Massachusetts. And then as part of that, I was able to weasel in there 
a semester exchange program in Edinburgh. Um, and, uh, you know, there's multiple cities I could go to and Edinburgh was like, once I saw that on the list, I was like, oh, I'm there, you know, and I, I went there, uh, I mean, Edinburgh is an, an incredible city and Scotland is just a beautiful country, but you know, I'm not gonna lie. I went there because of the golf. Um, and you know, but academically I was still in the landscape architecture program, but what I didn't even know actually until I got there was that they, at the time, they don't any longer, but at the time they had a master's program in golf course architecture. And um, so I was able to finagle getting into that master's course for, for one of my classes. Um, I still had my other land arc uh, requirements I had to satisfy I was, while I was there, but it allowed me to travel around Scotland on the weekends and, and visit all these golf courses. and. You know, I was just I was trying to educate myself on the history of golf and golf course architecture. And I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. So, you know, it's just an incredible opportunity to be able to go over there for, for a semester. What's a, a course from outside Edinburgh that sticks with you that maybe maybe some people don't uh, necessarily make a, a rotation of your your trips over there? Is there one from college that always well, sticks with you? You know, the one I would always tell people was North Barrick, but, you know, that cat's out of the bag. Everybody knows about it now. Um, it used to kind of be more under the radar. Um, but North Barrick is just one of the most fun and unique golf experiences on the planet. And so I, I highly recommend that to everybody. But, I mean, there, there's so many. Um, you know, a, a place I was at more recently, actually, last summer, I was back over there, and there's this course called Blair Gowrie, which is, a f I think they have 54 holes on site, but nine holes were designed by McKenzie. And uh, so I went out there and visited that. And it's like this very unassuming place. You're not really expecting much, but then you get there and you walk the property and it is so cool. I mean, it was just like, I didn't know about that course when I was there in Edinburgh uh, studying. I wish I had, um, but I, I would say that's one that probably most people don't know about that's that's worth checking out but there's so many you know it's like that's they're they're, they're very spoiled over there and uh, i always say that you know their their second and third tier and even fourth tier courses are are so much better than you know most of what we have so it's uh you're just you're kind of spoiled everywhere you go there's just great golf so josh let's jump to uh, Dr. McKenzie, um, for everyone listening, I, I'm imagining you saw the title of the podcast. You know a little thing or two about Alistair, uh, and that's why you're tuning in. But for those that don't, and uh, especially for those that are joining us, I know there's some folks joining us on our winter meeting who uh, this is their first introduction to Dr. Alistair McKenzie. So I'll try to uh, do a, I don't know, high, a very high level overview of of Dr. McKenzie before we get to, to some questions for you, Josh, but you know, he was a surgeon with the British army during the Boer war. He became an expert in military camouflage, uh, around that time. He also became one of the greatest golf course architects of all time. And, uh, I'd like to say that's arguable. I don't think it is. Um, and mostly due to his, his work, you know, I mean, he, he worked all around the globe, England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Australia, New Zealand, South America, North America, 
Uh, he gave us the private cathedrals of Augusta National, Cypress Point, Royal Melbourne, Crystal Downs, and uh, even some public escapes, places that are, are destinations for many, like La Hinch, Pasatiempo, uh, University of Michigan, uh, University of Ohio State University golf course. Rest in peace. We can talk a little bit about that as I'm in Ohio. And then uh, some other places we're visiting, Northwoods and Sharp Park. And so the list could go on and on. There's not as prolific as maybe a Donald Ross or some of the other names, but my gosh, Mackenzie just seems to capture the imagination and minds of golfers. And so you've spent a good amount of time uh, with this, well, not, maybe not in the person with this man, but with this man's writings and with this man's uh, a life. And so, you know, I, I was hoping, Josh, to kind of break out our questions for him to, to keep me organized on, you know, maybe the person, the architect, uh, the artist, and the, and the writer, which I know, you know, that, that kind of all touches on golf for him. But it, let's just start with the, the person. Like from, from your understanding, Josh, what was he like? What was Alistair, Dr. Alistair McKenzie like? Do you have any sense of what principles he lived life by or what core values he, he had? I mean, he, I got to imagine you've read so, uh, pretty much everything about him. You probably have more of a sense of that than, than anybody else. But do you have a, is this someone you'd be having a beer with and you'd enjoy spending time with? G- give me what your thoughts are there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he was a very charismatic guy, and he—he's, uh, I think, is the type of guy that you'd have a blast having a beer, a couple of beers, some scotch, you know, like hanging out with. Um, he he liked to tell stories. Um, he was like a very, I would say, adventurous type of guy. He sort of had an, uh, uh, he, I think, at one point he described himself as having, like, the spirit or the soul of a revolutionary. So he was like this guy that just like loved adventure. And, um, you know, like when he was a little kid, like 10 years old or even younger, he would just, when his family would go on holiday up into the Highlands in Scotland, he would spend like all day by himself venturing out into the forest and like walk miles in just forest by himself and like go fishing. And he was just, you know, he loved nature and um, he's sort of a wild man and, and just like very, yeah, again, ad- adventurous. Um, and like, I, I would say he's sort of like, a, he was like, you know, an explorer in, in some sense. And I, I refer to him in the intro of the book as a, as a golf expeditionary. And I think that's, that's kind of how he saw himself as traveling the globe and sort of spreading the gospel of the good game of golf. Uh, Did it was was there any stories that in in all your research that kind of uh, stick with you or allude to that? Were there any? I know he was well documented in his thoughts and writings. Was there anyone kind of talking about Dr. Alistair McKenzie outside of golf in any way that you can recall? Well, there's like anecdotes from uh, like one that comes to mind is um, if you really want to get to know him on a, on a personal level is like this really lovely letter that his sister wrote his sister Marion uh, when he passed away and he he wrote this letter to the Yorkshire Evening Post and um, to try to just give a sense it was kind of like an obituary but it was it was more like well this is who he was as a person we all knew who he was 
as a famous golf course architect, but this is who I knew him as, as being my brother. And um, so that, that anecdote comes to mind. And there was other people, you know, most in the golf space that wrote about him. Um, but I think, uh, and I actually use that piece as um, one of the forewords in my book. I mean, Ben Crenshaw wrote the forward, but I love that piece so much that I put it also as another forward as a way of introducing him on a personal level. Um, and so I'd encourage people to, to read that. Um, but um, yeah, you know, he had, he was in a, a large family of five, five kids, um, but he was the second born, but the oldest actually died as an infant. So he was, you know, in effect, like the, the oldest of, of four children. And um, his father was a doctor, you know, medical family. His father was a doctor. One of his brothers became a doctor. His sister, Marion became a doctor. He, he was obviously a doctor. So um, that was sort of the background of, of the family. But, uh, and, and he grew up in Northern England, uh, you know, near Leeds, born in a town called Normanton. Um, but his father was from the Highlands in Scotland and his mother was from Glasgow. Um, so, you know, the Scottish culture and the Scottish heritage was very much a part of his family. And he always thought of himself and presented himself as a Scotsman. And, you know, he loved to, loved to play up the Scottish heritage. And um, I, I just getting ready for our chat. I was looking at the chronological order of uh, all the courses he's done work. And um, I, I don't know, I was, I was as a Scotsman and I've read uh, a couple of, his books, not nearly as much as you, but Spirit of St. Andrews, I go back to quite frequently. And I knew he was very proud Scotsman. I was kind of surprised that he didn't do that much work. There it is. I, he didn't do that much work comparatively to all these other parts of the world uh, in Scotland. Is that a surprise to you at all, being that that's where he's from? No, it actually, maybe it sounds counterintuitive, but it actually makes sense to me. <clears throat> Knowing uh, the time frame and sort of the history of golf development in in the uk and then around the world and, and so at the time that he be, really started getting into golf course architecture starting in 1906 1907 with albedly um golf was already extremely prominent all over scotland you know there was golf everywhere and there wasn't really the need for that many new golf developments in scotland um but where golf was booming was really in england at the time and then also, and then a few years later, kind of around the world, starting in the you know, late teens and 20s, now what we refer to as the golden era, the golden age, um, you know, he saw this opportunity to sort of spread golf around the world because there was economic boom and, and development happening all over the world. So, um, so it actually makes a lot of sense to me that he didn't do very much work in Scotland. And most of the work he did was in, he did a ton of work in England, a lot of renovation work. I mean, he did a little bit of work in Scotland some in Ireland, but, you know, and then he, he saw this opportunity to come to the States and then, and start traveling the world, going to places like Australia and et cetera, you know, you listed in the intro, um, because he, he saw that there was a need, there was a demand for, for golf to be built and he wanted to help influence that. So actually, you know, I was going to mention, you know, at the outset, you, you were saying, you know, he's, you think he's the best golf course architect ever. I won't, argue with you. I, you know, I tend to agree, which is why I refer to him as the preeminent architect. Um, but I think one thing that's not debatable 
is that he was definitely the most influential golf architect on a global basis, especially at the time. You know, guys like Don Ross built a lot here in the States, primarily on the East Coast. Um, and there were other guys sort of in their own region, in their own geographic region, doing a lot of work and doing some really good work. But Mackenzie was the first guy to sort of start just traveling the world and building golf courses all over the place. And he essentially became a nomad for the last, uh, you know, nine years, eight, nine years of his life. Um, and so I think he influenced golf in a way that's, I think a lot of people overlook or underappreciate in places like Australia or in South America, um, even here in the States, especially on the West coast, you know, he kind of, um, he set a, he definitely set trends. And, um, and so, yeah, he, he didn't build as many courses as Donald Ross did, um, on balance, but I think his influence on the game or the, the development of golf around the world was greater than any architect of that era. Yeah, it was, it was one of the main questions I, I had for you here early was that is a stark difference than so many of the, the golden age uh, guys, right? And we just did an England series, you know, Harry Colt, kind of unknown most most places, but a huge deal in England. Donald Ross, obviously a huge deal in the US. And you, you could kind of see uh, uh, people sticking to the regions, but uh, Mackenzie of the same time period, he touched them all. He was on all these continents, what was it about? I, I love your term expeditionary. That's really a cool, cool way to describe them. But wh what do you think allowed for that? The, that he end, well, how did he end up in so many different parts of the world? Uh, well, I think it was a combination of the fact that he had that sort of adventurous spirit and he loved to travel. Um, and, you know, I think that's like a, that, that's a personality trait you know some people don't really but they're not travelers you know and but he really loved to travel and he didn't mind you know and you got to imagine in those days too like he's on a on a ship for weeks at a time crossing the atlantic you know a couple weeks here and there and, and then you know on a train crossing the north america and on a train crossing back and and it's like the modes of travel in those days were obviously you know there, there was not commercial air you know, there wasn't commercial air travel. So, um, and then he was going down to South America, you know, for a couple months and then back over to England. And, and if you look at the chronology of his travel and where he was doing all of his projects, it's amazing how much ground he traveled in a relatively short period of time. And um, it, for anyone to do that, even today, it would be very impressive. But the fact that he was able to do it then, and I, I think it was just because, like I said, you know, he, he had that adventurous spirit. And then also he saw the opportunity, you know, he was a, he was a savvy guy. Um, you know, he was really savvy with economics and, um, saw there was a business opportunity, although, you know, you can make an argument that he maybe wasn't the best businessman in the sense, you know, he died broke, um, in the early years of the depression. Um, but I, I think clearly like he, he saw that there was a demand and an opportunity to, to build golf in places like America, which is where he ended up moving full time and then elsewhere. No wonder we got so many terrific writings from him. He had to pass the time on exactly. trains and yeah. boats and everything. He's probably like, well, I got another 14 hour uh, 
<laughs> trip here. I better uh, get out the old notebook. <laughs> and that's, but that's exactly what he did. I mean, you, you nailed it. He, you know, he had days and weeks at a time where he was in travel and he wrote, he just, you know, and he wrote by hand and I have a lot of his handwritten scribble. That's like a lot of it is very hard to decipher. <laughs> um, it was kind of a style in those days of how people, what their penmanship was like. A lot of it was like very sloppy. It kind of re reminds me of actually my, my grandfather's penmanship, which whenever I see it, you're always like, what, what word is that? You can kind of make out every like second or third word. And then you're trying to use those words to form a context for the rest of the sentence and then figure out what that word is. But it's like really, a lot of it was really hard to write, but he would just scribble pages and pages and pages. And, you know, he cranked out tons and tons of articles that he published in all these different disparate publications all around the world. And then also his, his books that he wrote. And he was a very prolific writer. And um, a lot of the stuff he wrote didn't get published. A lot of it did, but you know, a lot didn't. And um, so, yeah, but I, I think it's, it was a way for him to pass the time while he was traveling. So that's, let's jump, let's jump to him as the writer uh, in a little bit more detail. Um, and I'll ask it by asking about your book, The Mackenzie Reader. How did you go about collecting uh, all that? <laughs> it seems like that would be a uh, endless. Um, it seems like it'd be very difficult. So, how did you get these unpublished and some published? But how, how did you get everything to to come up with this this book? Well, it really took you know the research spanned over fifteen years essentially, and so it was a very long drawn out process and. As I began researching him and his career and started collecting these writings, I didn't really have a sense I would ever going to make, you know, turn it into a book. Um, but then, you know, after several years had passed and I started accumulating many of these articles, like you said, some had been published a lot, you know, some hadn't, um, you know, a lot of them had been published actually in, like I said, disparate publications, but they're, they're out of print and they're lost, you know, they're like, basically stuck in archives or libraries and they're not really accessible. You can't just find them on the internet, in other words. Um, and even, even today, it's like very little of that is findable on the internet. You have to actually go to these archives, where the material is, where these old publications are. Um, and so I started, you know, I, I, over the years, I built a network of other researchers and historians and people that sort of managed many of these archives and these libraries, and that would help me do research. Like for instance, if I needed something from, uh, you know, the National Library in Scotland, I had a contact there, or the British Library in London had a contact there, you know, or like, you know, I have contacts in South America and Buenos Aires that would help me. And uh, I just I built this network in all over the States. There's, you'd be amazed at how many libraries there are that have these old publications that are just buried and they're in basements and, a lot of times they're they're stored off site and so they have to be like you know dug up out of boxes and dusted off but um you know so over several years of collecting all these writings i started to think of well and not just the writings but also a lot of the other material that i was collecting photos and plans and sketches and correspondence and all this all this really interesting historical material i started thinking in terms of well 
you know, maybe, maybe I can turn this onto a book or, or, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to share it essentially. It's like, I'd like to, I know that there's other people that'd be interested in this stuff and I'd like to share it somehow and get out in the public domain. Um, and, you know, I think in, uh, I want to say 2001 or so, Tom Doak and uh, Ray Haddock published a book, a biography of McKenzie, which is a great book. And um, it's kind of a coffee table book and it's nicely presented. And so I, I kind of thought, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to just do a rehashed biography. That's kind of already been done, even though I have so much more material now than those guys did that, you know, I could do something like that and it would still be compelling. Um, but I, I started thinking, well, it would be really cool to create a contrasting publication, something that's totally unique. Um, and so I really got the concept, um, I think in like 2016 or so, I was in a used bookstore in Pacific Grove, uh, just around the corner from Pebble Beach. And I found this book called The Lincoln Reader. And it was all about Abraham Lincoln. And it was a compendium of all of these essays and speeches that he had written. And it was compiled by a contemporary historian of Lincoln, who was sort of an expert on him. And then he also invited other Lincoln historians to contribute little pieces. And he compiled this all together in this book that I thought was fascinating. And that was kind of a, like a light bulb went off. And I thought, wow, I could do something similar, use that model for all of the McKenzie material that I had and uh, use that as a way to publish all of these articles get them into the public domain and uh, and then also um, pair them with all of these really cool sketches and routing plans and photographs and um, you know make it make it sort of an interactive experience for the reader I mean it uh, it's a beautiful um, I, I, I'm ordering it this morning so I, I'm looking forward to my Mackenzie reader but it's a beautiful just from the pictures of it. I mean, it looks like uh, an art piece, you know, the way it's bounded. And um, I, I, I take it there's a lot of uh, routings and sketches that you've included in this. And uh, I maybe want to jump from Mackenzie, the writer, to go to Mackenzie, the artist. Like he, um, his, his sketches, I think it's something that has drawn me in the more I've gotten into architecture is and you're an, an architect, so I'm sure you have your, your own experience with this, but his are different, man. Like they, they really are. And I have a mother who is, um, uh, she calls herself an amateur artist, but she's gotten very good with watercolors. And it wasn't McKen McKenzie was like tremendous with watercolors, wasn't he? His, his wife, his second wife, Hilda, was a really good water, watercolorist. It was her hobby and her passion. And so it's funny that as when you said that your mother was a watercolorist, um, it's kind of funny also because my father is an architect and he's pretty much retired now, but he's, he's also done a lot of art in his career and he's gotten really into watercolors the last few years. He's doing all these watercolor paintings, but yeah, Mackenzie's, uh, wife, Hilda, his second wife, um, she, that was her hobby was doing watercolors. And so I have, I have tons and tons of these watercolors that she did that are like really beautiful. I, I think they're, I don't, I'm not like an expert art analyst, but to my eye, and I think I have a decent eye for, for art. I think they're largely really good. And, and some of them are, there's some that are of different golf course scenes and there's a lot that aren't. And um, so she would help him 
essentially uh, do some of the watercolor detailing on some of his plans. But, but no, you kind of hit on something. It's like, you know, you said his sketches were different than, and I, I presume you're talking about, you know, other architects of that era. You know, you look at like these Donald Ross sketches or, you know, I've seen like Seth Rayner sketches or, um, you know, uh, actually there's another guy, uh, Tom Simpson, you're probably familiar with, a brilliant architect. Um, he was also a brilliant artist and he did these beautiful, beautiful perspectives of golf holes and, and really nice sketches also. But Mackenzie had a very unique style and um, he definitely had, he definitely had, uh, you know, I always tell people like he had kind of, he was one of these rare, rare people that had both like the artistic side of the brain and also like the scientific, mathematical, analytical side of the brain. He had both of those going at the same time because he was a doctor by training and uh, he was pretty well versed in economics and math and that sort of stuff. Um, but he definitely had this whole artistic side of him. And so his sketches, a lot of them are, most of them are, are very kind of abstract in nature and conceptual. And they're, it's, you know, to contrast that with like what an engineer would draw, which is essentially to try to replicate something as is as accurately as possible with correct dimensions and scale. I mean, he did, he did some of that, but he was also like very abstract. So if you look at like a lot of his green sketches, and I know that you guys are going to Pasa Tiempo. So when you're there, definitely look, you know, they have this like little showcase when you walk into the, the restaurant part of the clubhouse where they have some of the stuff on display and there's these sketches that he did of the greens complexes. Um, and he did this for a, a number of the courses he did work at, you know, Augusta has them. Most of these sketches, unfortunately have been lost to time. And that's kind of an interesting story in and of itself. But, but the sketch, the Pasatiebo for, for instance, has 11 of their 18 sketches. And if you look at these green sketches, they're very, very abstract and very conceptual. And you wouldn't look at it and say, oh, this is like an accurate as built. You know, in other words, you can't look at that. You know, they just went they're, they're in the process of going through a restoration right now, working with Jim Urbina. They did the front nine last year and they're going to be doing the back nine this year. Um, I guess when you guys are there, actually, all 18 holes will be open, which would be cool. Because uh, I think they're break ground again in April for the back nine. Um, but the point I'm getting to is you can't just like look at those green sketches and say, okay, this is a this is what we follow to restore a green complex. It's It doesn't have that kind of accurate detail. It's super abstract in nature. And they were never meant to be actually, you know, like the way I, the way I think about it is he was trying to convey concepts to his foreman to his associates to his guys that we would call shapers today the guys that were running the the horses and the scrapers and the plows and that were actually like you know molding these brilliant landforms he would he would sketch them on paper like very abstractly and kind of um, exaggerate the slopes and exaggerate the contouring in a certain way because he was trying to just convey conceptually you know like this needs to be a landform here and this needs to transition down into this kind of a landform there. And so, but the 
the brilliance is actually done in the field by the guys on site. And McKenzie knew that he understood that you, you couldn't, you couldn't capture all that detail on a page two dimensionally. It has to be done in the field. And so that was actually something he had a knack for was finding really talented guys and training them to be able to build features the way that he wanted. And, and then he would do these like, you know, very, like I said, conceptual sketches and hand them to these guys and sit and talk them through it. And then they'd be sort of left to their own devices and they'd build it. And then he'd be on to the next site. And sometimes he'd come back and other times he wouldn't, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. He, uh, it's so funny. You talk about the both sides of the brain and that he had, uh, he had both the creative side and the analytical side because, you know, I spent a lot of time with obsessed golfers and people that love uh, golf. They love architecture. And I got, I always notice, you know, my engineer playing partners or my more analytical friends, um, you know, they gravitate to certain courses and they love uh, strategic challenges, but they love, they love Rainer, you know, Rainer, all my engineer buddies put Rainer above at pretty much everybody. And then I have, you know, my friends that are more uh, the poets and the creatives and the designers and, you know, they gravitate to a different brand of, of course. But when, when we play McKenzie to me, and this is why, again, he, I'm, I'm a big bias believer here because he is my favorite architect, but McKenzie to me, everybody enjoys the McKenzie golf course. So I think those two sides of the brain kind of directly go to who the audience is and that he took so much care to do both of those, those elements of it. Uh, I find that really, really interesting. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, yeah, you're hard pressed to find anybody that says they don't enjoy playing a McKenzie course. Um, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, one is sort of what you alluded to just the, the artistry, um, I think really appeals to everybody. And, and I think that's principally because his goal was always to try to imitate nature as best as he could. And actually, you know, a lot of the sites that he had to work with weren't that we wouldn't consider them necessarily world-class sites. Obviously a Cypress point is a world-class site and that's the best site he ever had to work with. And that's a, that's a standout. But a lot of the sites that he had were actually, you know, he had to work at it to make them feel natural and to make them, you know, at, like when you guys go play Meadow Club, right? Um, your heart, I mean, when you play that course, your perception is that these landforms that support the green complexes and the bunker complexes are just inherently native to that site, the meadow, which is called the Bon Tempe Meadow. Uh, but they weren't. You know, it was like a relatively flat site. There was kind of subtle movement and he shaped all those landforms. He created them. And that's where he, that's what he did most of most of the courses he worked at. Um, and so I think going back to your point is that if you're able to imitate nature, there's something about that, um, that whether people, whether it's whether they're aware of it or whether it's even on a subconscious level, it appeals to them very much. Whereas to use your point, you know, a rainer to create a contrast there, there are the, the nerds and the guys that appreciate that. And it is really cool in some sense. It's a, it's a, you know, it's its own very different kind of style 
and it's a very different presentation. Um, but I think there's a lot of people that, and they may not even be able to articulate it to themselves or to others as to why, but there's a lot of people that I think that style like kind of turns them off and because it's, it's manufactured, it's engineered and, and that's how it was supposed to be. I mean, Rainer was an engineer and I was just actually had a phone call yesterday with a friend of mine who's a member at Cypress Point, And we were talking about this very subject, Rainer and McKenzie, and the fact that, you know, Rainer did the original routing at Cypress Point. And, um, and then he died in 1925 and then they hired McKenzie and then he, he built what was there. And so there's been this sort of back and forth, a bit of a, you know, argument or discussion amongst some of the GCA nerd types of like, you know, who gets, who, who should get credit for Cypress Point? Should Rainer get credit? And it's like, well, you know, in some sense, like parts of the routing are still intact from what Rainer drew, you know, and, and, but there's a chunk of the property holes really three through 12 that have all been kind of rearranged. Um, but Mackenzie built the greens complexes. He built the bunkers, you know, he was on site. He spent more time on site at a Cypress point than any other project, except maybe Pasatiempo that he built, you know, many of these sites, he didn't really spend hardly any time on site. So, um, you know, it's definite, like Mackenzie is definitely the guy that designed and built Cypress point and he deserves all the credit. If Rainer had not died in 1925 and he had built something out there, would it be good? Yeah, it would be, it'd be pretty cool. It's a world-class site. You know, you think of like a, a Fisher's Island type property, which is, I love Fisher's Island. It's phenomenal. Um, but you, you probably would have ended up something like that. You know, he would have built his templates would have had this kind of engineered look to it, the landscape, and it would just be completely different than what's there today. Um, and so I think that's just going back to your point, just the ability to imitate nature or to, to create something that feels natural, that feels like it's kind of always been there on a subconscious level, I think really appeals to most everybody. Yeah. Th there's, there's also of the, uh, McKenzie heads are the people that really gravitate to his golf courses who, um, do you have a term for these people, by the way? I mean, you wrote the McKenzie reader. Is it? Yeah. I call them McKenzie files. McKenzie files. <laughs> McKenzie files. So I'm, a, I'm, I think, uh, I think actually uh, Jeff Shackelford came up with that term. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I, McKenzie files. The McKenzie files, there's a lot of them. And and it always seems to me that there's a bit more of a mystical connection with the McKenzie files than there is um, with the Donald Ross Society or anybody else that has like all this admiration for these dead guys, you know, these these golden age architects, which they all they're deserving of of it, all of them for their work. But yeah, there's like this this weird mystical, spiritual almost connection between McKenzie Piles, and I think I've never really said this or thought about it until you hearing what you just said. That um, one with nature type of feel you get out there from the way that it just feels like it it, it wasn't, and I love that the, the the metal club that he actually did make those features. He did move it. Um, Lahinch comes to mind where I know he did the same thing, but I, I Lahinch is my favorite golf course. Like, man, do you feel like this primordial, uh, 
feeling out there. Like this is, you know, at the start of time almost, and it just happens to be a golf course, yet, you know, those features were added and shaped. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting thing to me of, of everyone's connection to, to a McKenzie course. I, I really like the word, the, that you use the word mystical because I've often thought in terms of describing a place, you know, to me, Cypress Point is the paramount example of this. And, you know, there's a lot of these courses that you can play that are, that have this just Lahinch, like you said, and, and others, Metal Club that have this, that kind of feeling no more so than Cypress Point. And I've tried to describe this feeling. It's a very unique feeling that you, that I have never had really anywhere else in my life. I, I don't think, I mean, I've had it, but not to the extent that I've had at Cypress Point. When you are at Cypress Point, um, you, you really feel like you're in a, a dreamland. You feel like you're in a, like, you know, this is not reality. You're in some sort of like, you know, alternate reality or something, someplace that's, that's just imaginary almost. And it, it's hard for me to even articulate it, but that's the view. I always come back to the word mystical. It does have that, that feeling of like, you know, where am I? This is, this is out, you know, outer worldly. And as a contrast to that, just around the bend from, you know, on 17 mile drive is Pebble Beach, which is a phenomenal site, obviously a world-class site. And you're just immersed in these ocean vistas everywhere you look. Um, but you're distracted by the fact that the features on the golf course are very, very clearly man-made. They don't feel natural at all, especially now, you know, everything feels very formulaic and man-made and so i think and this is something also that happens on a subconscious level to a certain extent you have this kind of like you know you know you have this sort of push and pull internally between the elements the ocean the setting which is just this unbelievably world-class phenomenal setting and then the golf course that doesn't really i think live up to the site to, in my opinion um, it's a great golf course. Strategically, it's very interesting. Uh, there's, there's some really impressive things about Pebble Beach, but it has a very, very different feeling than Cypress Point does, which is right around the corner. Um, because, yeah, when you're at Cypress, the, the sense is, like, this has always been here. That's, that's, your, that's your feeling, even though, yeah, a lot of that was manufactured, actually. Cypress is a unique site because it had sort of kind of these distinct different geographic features within the site you know you got the cliff the cliff holes which overlook in the ocean and then you kind of go inland into the forest and that kind of feels like a distinct separate part of the property and then you have the sort of the dunes holes and um but the routing is so brilliant that you weave in and out of those and it it doesn't feel contrived at all it feels like the you know the flow the rhythm of the routing the cadence is just so perfect for that site. And you're really experiencing these different sort of geographic features and these different types of land. And so to, to build the golf course, to make it feel all very cohesive, it took actually some work and you had to move some earth around. And, um, and as a contrast to that, you look at a place like Spyglass Hill and, you know, some people might like it. It's, you know, it's cool, I guess, for what it is, but Spyglass has sort of the same thing going on where you have the first five holes in the sixth tee or down in the dunes by the ocean. And then the last, you know, 12 holes, you go up into the forest 
and they feel like two different, completely different golf courses. And, and that's all like your experience with the routing is such that you experience the, the dunes holes first. And then once you're over the dunes holes, you're in the forest the rest of the time and you never come back out. And so for all intents and purposes, they do feel like different properties, different golf courses. Cyprus is such a better routing because uh, you go in and out and you experience all of that. And, um, and it just works so well. When it comes to course features, um, what would you say makes a McKenzie golf course a McKenzie golf course? Like if you were, you know, dropped on the planet, blindfolded and just revealed and you had to, <coughs> you had to tell your host if it's a McKenzie or not, what, what would you be looking for? Well, okay. So this gets to be a little complicated because if I'm trying to explain to somebody that's a golfer that has never experienced the site, um, it might be difficult to understand because in the sense that like, sometimes it's hard to see the forest from the trees, you know, that, you know, using that as an analogy, but because what I would say is primarily what makes the McKenzie course, McKenzie course is first and foremost, the routing. And when you're on the property itself, it's hard to kind of analyze the routing. I mean, you're experiencing it in real time, but, you oftentimes don't have like a map in front of you and you know, you're, you're looking through it and you're, it's like you're experiencing it in 3d and uh, instead of 2d. And um, so it, that that's kind of a difficult thing to, I guess, articulate to people, especially to, I would say like, you know, laymen, um, you know, architecture nerds probably understand that stuff better, but McKenzie understood very well that, um, the paramount thing that makes a golf course stand apart from the rest is a routing first and foremost. So the routing has to be great. And McKenzie was a brilliant router of the golf course. Um, you know, he had this ability to, which still is just amazing to me. He could go onto a raw piece of property, having never seen it before. And a lot of times having very little data compared to what we have. Now we have Google earth. We have, you know, more detailed topographic maps. We have all sorts of information and technology available to us today that he didn't have then. He'd go to a raw site and in a day or two, come up with a world-class routing and then walk away and do some green sketches and, you know, talk with his associates and say, this is what we want to do. And then he was on, you know, a train heading somewhere else to the next property. Um, and that's a very, you know, anybody that's ever tried to route a golf course, I don't know if you've ever tried that as a, even just like an academic exercise, trying to get a, a site and take out a piece of paper and try to come up with the routing. It's a very challenging exercise. And, um, of course, you know, nowadays, like Tom Doak is kind of considered sort of the, the master of this. Bill Core is also, I think, a brilliant router. And others, I think DeVries also as well. But, you know, Tom has a knack for being able to take a topo map and not even being on property and, you know, essentially figure out an incredible routing, you know, putting these puzzle pieces together. And it's like when you're routing a property, it's like a jigsaw puzzle, but it's a it's a dynamic puzzle. It's not a static puzzle because for every piece of the puzzle that you move, like for every hole, let's say, that's throwing off and affecting all the rest of the holes. So it's a really, really tricky exercise to do. And I 
beat my head against the wall trying to route golf courses on sites and come up with, you know, elegant solutions for routing. And it's tough. And Mackenzie was able to do it on site in like a day or two. And I think maybe the best example of this that I can think of is the, the Valley Club, which is a course in Santa Barbara in Montecito. Maybe you've heard of that. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty tight piece of property. It's constricted kind of on both sides. It has a road that goes through the middle of the property that you cross. It's got these creeks that meander through that kind of create these constraints. And I mean, I've tried this. I've thought about this in depth because I, I worked there a long time ago and I helped restore that golf course, you know, with Tom and, and Jim Rubina and those guys. Um, but I, I defy anybody to come up with a better routing than what's there at the Valley Club. And Mackenzie did that, I think, in a day, maybe two days. And it's absolutely brilliant. Um, but anyways, so yeah, it's like, that's first and foremost, the routing. Okay, this is kind of a long-winded answer. Secondly, maybe the thing that stands no, I, out yeah. more more to, uh, you know, that's easier to explain and convey and people that can, you know, can grasp it are the greens complexes. You know, Mackenzie greens are... You know they're all very different but they have this distinctive feel to them and they're they're molded you know you know, and this is this is actually another interesting thing is um that they're very different from site to site you know he he adapted to the site that he had to work with and he didn't just try to create his own templates and rebuild them on every single site he went to a place like pasa tiempo which is a much more extreme piece of land than like metal club and he built much more extreme greens than Metal Club. Metal Club is a much more subtle piece of land, and the greens are much more subtle. And it's all. Uh, and then a place like Valley Club also is kind of a subtler property, and it's a much smaller property. So the greens are subtler, and the greens are smaller. They kind of fit in scale. So one of the things that bothers me, it's sort of a pet peeve, is like when people say, um, you know, oh, the, oh, that's a McKenzie bunker. We want to build a McKenzie bunker, or we want to build a McKenzie green. It's like, well, no, his greens actually varied a lot from site to site, and his bunkers varied a lot from site to site. The the bunker styles, as you'll see at Meadow Club, are very toned down, and um, they're almost like a, a lot of them are almost feel like almost pot bunkers in a way, but without revetted edges, just kind of rustic edges. But they're sort of simple in shape, and they have kind of a rustic edge. Whereas like Cypress Point bunkers or Pasatiempo bunkers are. There's all these capes and bays and wild things going on. And, and, and then you contrast those bunkers to say like Royal Melbourne, which has a very distinct feel in and of itself, those, those types of bunkers. So, you know, he built, he adapted his features, his greens and his bunkers to the site that he was working on. Um, but so, yeah, so, so greens is the second thing. And then, and then bunkers is what I was going to say. It's the third thing, which I just talked about. But those features, I think, are what really distinguish the McKenzie course from, from most others. And that's, that's the easiest way to convey it to laymen, I guess, and say, this is, this is why, this is how you know you're on a McKenzie property. Josh, I, I should have anticipated this because I am loving this discussion. Uh, and I want to keep going with you. I haven't even asked specific questions about golf courses yet. So, I, if it's cool with you and you can still hang out, I'm going to take a break, thank our sponsors, come back 
with with part two where we can dive into some of the courses. Uh, I got a request here by chat from one of our Australian uh, listeners, actually, that I got to ask you, but I'm going to ask it on the next part if that's if you got time. Is that cool? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks everybody for listening. Make sure you tune in for part two, where we're going to dive into a little bit more on the courses of California, as well as um, some other questions on Dr. Alistair McKenzie. And uh, a big thanks to the supporter of this week's podcast, uh, Titleist, the number one ball in golf, Titleist approach to the fitting experience, which I myself have uh, been fortunate to go through. I can't recommend enough. It's uh, the three Ds, distance control, dispersion control, and descent angle. Finding the optimal balance of all three treats you to a whole new level of approach consistency. So thank you to Titleist. Check them out at Titleist.com. SM10 wedges are about to hit the market. Uh, Very exciting time for all things Titleist. Without further ado, on to the next one. Josh, thanks again for being with us. We'll see you in a week. You got it.